I invite you to turn in your copies of God's holy and inspired word back to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, as we continue to work through the Beatitudes this morning. Uh, we come to what often is referred to as the final Beatitude, where we will focus in on verse 10. However, I am going to read verse 3 and verse 10 this morning. The title of the sermon this morning is Persecuted for the Beatitudes of Christ that are in us. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Our Heavenly Father, we ask for your help this morning to listen well to a, a promise of the good life that is not one that we readily embrace. In fact, is one that we often resist. One that we will often scheme to avoid. And so, Father, we ask that you would humble our hearts this morning, that we may with fresh ears listen, with fresh eyes see Christ. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. How do you respond to persecution? How are we, as the church of Jesus Christ, how are we supposed to perceive of persecution? Because the way in which we perceive it will determine how we respond to it. In the 1959 classic Ben-Hur, we see a man who is wrestling with this very issue. We find a man who is at the end of himself, who has become driven by hate and the desire to avenge the betrayal and injustice that he and his family have received from a childhood friend named Masala. Masala was one who grew up with Ben-Hur. He grew up in the home of Judah Ben-Hur. He grew up receiving food and receiving fellowship from his mom and from his sister. And then he moved away. And then years later, he comes back as a man and he has risen in the ranks of Rome. And he now comes as someone who is high up in, in the, the leadership of Rome, and he has, has been brought to the region because of the number of uprisings and rebellions that are taking place from the Jews towards, the Rome, to, towards Rome. And so his job is to come in and squash it. And as the movie begins, that, that you see this, this, this homecoming where these 
Two old friends are reunited and there are smiles and there are hugs and there is the the remembrance of that former relationship but then it starts to it starts changing and 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 it starts you know developing this weird kind of vibe to it. And eventually what happens is Masala says to to Judah ben Hur Look, I'm here to put all this down. And Ben-Hur says, look, I don't support these rebellions. I don't, I don't support these uprisings. This is not the way to do things. And Masala says, good. What I want you to do is I want you to spy on your neighbors and report to me. And Ben-Hur's like, well, that's going too far. I'm not going to spy on my people I'm not going to give Rome information on my neighbors. I know what happens to people who get reported on to Rome. And Masala draws a line in the sand. You're either for me or you are against me. And Ben-Hur's response is, well, if those are the only two choices that you give me, then I am against you. And what follows the the following day is a seemingly very innocent situation that gets blown out of proportion and changes the lives of all these people for the rest of their existence. And as a new governor has come to Judea, and as he is walking, as as he, he is coming through the streets in order to get to the palace, as he is passing by the Ben-Hur's home, as they are watching from the rooftop one of those, one of those brick tiles from the roof slides off, hits the ground, freaks the horse out. The, the governor is thrown and he's harmed. And immediately the assumption is this was a, a, an attack on the governor. And Masala knows whose home it is, and he goes in with his troops, and he has everyone arrested. And as he talks to Ben-Hur, when Ben-Hur says this was innocent, it wasn't done on purpose, we, we're, not, you know, we're not part of the rebels, Masala acknowledges it. You're right, but you just gave me a gift, and I now get to use you to make an example. Because if I won't even treat my own childhood friend well, then all the people who are participating in the rebellion will know for sure what's going to happen to them. He knowingly betrays the relationship. And what he does is he sentences uh, Judah Ben-Hur to become a galley slave where everyone knew that, that typically with, within the first year of being a galley slave, you will have died. Either by way of being part of a sea battle in which you would die with, you know, within the sea battle, or by just being worked to death. So he is sentenced to be a, a, sla- to, to be a slave in the galleys of Roman ships. His, his mother and his sister are imprisoned, and the key is thrown away. In prison, by the way, 
they develop leprosy. His head servant comes to to give a testimony in his favor, and the result is he is thrown in prison where he becomes a cripple. How do you respond to betrayal and injustice? How do you respond to persecution when you haven't done anything wrong? His response was to be driven by hate and to make the promise that he would return and that he would avenge the wrongs. And and so you see him filled with hate, being driven by by this desire to get back to Judea, to get back to his family and to get back to Masala so that he can kill Masala. And he eventually does get back. And he eventually does get his revenge. Does the movie end? The protagonist has has achieved his goal. The wrong has been righted. No. The movie keeps going. Because the hate that has been driving him is not satisfied by the death of Masala. And now he has become convinced that what truly needs to die is Rome itself. He is still driven. He cannot be at peace. And he is convinced that there cannot be peace as long as they exist under the heel of Rome. And so his love interest, Esther, speaks to him of the love and peace that she's been hearing about from the man from Nazareth. And then she references two Beatitudes that she has just heard spoken by the man of Nazareth. A sermon in which Ben-Hur was there but then left before it started because he wasn't interested in hearing the words of the man of Nazareth. But she says to him, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Then her responds, every man of Judea is unclean and will stay unclean until we have scoured off our bodies the crust and filth of being at the mercy of tyranny. No other life is possible except to wash this land clean in blood. Esther responds, there is a law in life that I know. Blood begets more blood. Death generates death. Giving evil for evil is turning you to stone. It is as though you have become Masala. How do we respond? when we are persecuted for righteousness' sake. I think if we are honest, we would say that 
There's a whole lot here that we see and hear in in Ben-Hur that maybe we think is a bit extreme, but nevertheless believe is appropriate. The wrongs need to be avenged. And actions need to be taken. There was another beatitude that Esther left out. It was the very next beatitude after blessed are the merciful and blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This brings us all the way back to the very beginning of the Beatitudes, as the first Beatitude in verse 3 tells us, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what Jesus is doing is he is, is, is calling back that original promise of that first Beatitude because they, they are held together as one. That this list of Beatitudes are not individual sage sayings that we can pick and choose from, but they are a group that are held together in which the life of Christ himself, as he experienced it and lived it out in his earthly ministry, is being described in these Beatitudes. Do you want to be like Christ Do you want to be like the tree planted by streams of water in Psalm 1? Then here are the conditions of wisdom that will help you become that that vibrant, that verdant tree. And it's not easy and it's not comfortable. I received an email a couple of weeks ago. Where the person said, it's like we're drinking, trying to drink from a fire hydrant. Week after week after week, the words of Jesus are just gushing. And I can't keep up with it. And, and by the time, you know, the week has passed and, and, and I still am trying to, to deal with, with last week's sermon, there's another one. And then there's another one. And I just wrote back, yeah, try to be the one that's having to, uh, to drink it and give it. It's overwhelming. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn over their own sin over the existence of the curse that is still present within their own lives, let alone the presence of the curse outside. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness within themselves, not just those who hunger and thirst for righteousness out there, but who want it themselves. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted. But notice Jesus doesn't say simply, blessed are those who are persecuted. 
he says, blessed are those who are persecuted because they embody righteousness. Their lives are marked and characterized by the virtue of Christ himself as he lived his earthly life in the humility of taking on flesh to serve others and to consider others more important to himself, serving even to the point of death, even death on a cross, Philippians 2. And when the church embodies this virtue of Christ, as Christ is being formed within us through the means of grace, Jesus tells us that there is a blessing to be found when others respond to us the way they respond to him. Jesus was not very highly valued by the Jewish people when in, in his first advent. And he was certainly not valued by the elite within the religious authority who made sure that they would commit idolatry in order to ensure the death of Jesus Christ. Right? What was the, what was the sealing statement that got Pontius Pilate to change his mind? Multiple times he says there's nothing, he hasn't done anything. He hasn't broken a Roman law. I'm not going to punish someone if they haven't broken a law. And that's, his, that's what he says over and over. Well, let Herod deal with him. And Herod's like, well, I don't want to deal with him. You deal with him. He hasn't broken a law. And that's the way it goes until the leadership say, he has said that he is the king of the Jews, and you are no friend of Caesar's if you don't treat him as a threat to Caesar. And then they say, we have no other king but Caesar. The Jewish leadership embracing Caesar as their king as a way of trying to make sure that Jesus Christ would be crucified. One of the temptations that you and I have right now is the reality that as we continue to live in a society that is becoming more and more post-Christian, we are facing more and more pushback. We are facing more and more harassment. We are facing um, the pursuit of others who do not want us to be left to ourselves, and we're experiencing that more and more and more. The word here for persecuted in the Greek means to be harassed, pursued, or pushed out by an enemy or an opposing force. 
to be pushed to the edge, to be marginalized, to be pushed out of the marketplace, to be pushed out of vocation, to be pushed out of leadership, to, to be pushed into such a place that you no longer have a voice and you don't have influence, which means, which means things are no longer going the way that you think they should. And you and I are seeing this develop right now within Western society. Now, we are not yet dealing with what our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world are dealing with. We are not living in North Korea where a teen was recently put to death simply by watching a video that came from outside of the country. We are not yet living in Afghanistan, which since the American military pullout has increased the persecution and the death of Christians by hundreds of percents. We are not yet living as, our, as Palestinian Christians, where the, the very policies that Israel is putting into place causes those who name the name of Jesus Christ to, be, to, to lose their homes and to lose their vocations, to be put on the street. Where, by the way, prior to the new Israeli state being set up, that area was 80% Christian. And now it is less than 2%. Where the results of things that have happened in northern Iraq is that Christian communities have disappeared. Where we know that brothers and sisters who will not go along with the, harass, or the harassment and the marginalization and the pursuits of radical Islamists is lead, leading to men being put to death and their wives and children made slaves. Now, we are not there. And we need to be careful that we don't act like we're there because we are not. None of us came here today followed by the police. Well, unless, like Rusty, you were driving too fast. But that's a different thing. But none of us came here today pursued by the police. None of us showed up here today in fear of our lives. None of us showed up here today thinking, if I, if I go there and, and someone sees me on the live stream that, that my neighbor is going to report me and that could lead to me losing my job or uh, losing my home. We, we're not there. Are we experiencing some pushback? Absolutely. And this is why we need to deal with this now before it gets worse. Because if we don't learn how to respond well right now, when it's starting to become a little bit more real, but isn't you know, you know, costly to the point of our lives yet, if we can't respond well to persecution right now, how are we going to do 20 years from now when these things are coming? Notice what Jesus tells us. 
that this is persecution for righteousness sake. Notice what he's not saying. He's not saying blessed are those who are just persecuted. He's not saying blessed are those who are persecuted because they're annoying or rude or arrogant. Notice he's not saying that blessed are those who are persecuted because they act foolishly or do silly things. Yesterday in Walmart, I saw a guy wearing a shirt. I'm vaccinated by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I even rolled my eyes. But I looked and everyone that was walking past him, you could see, look and just do this. That's silly. That's silly. And it's silly to advertise it on a shirt. And the eye rolls he received, and, and if, if anyone said anything to him, I don't know. But if they did, he cannot say that he was being persecuted for righteousness sake. He was being persecuted for making a silly political statement and trying to use Jesus to do so. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who are persecuted because they act foolishly. He doesn't say, blessed are the persecuted because they are fanatical. He doesn't say, blessed are the persecuted because they stand up for a cause. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the persecuted for religio-political reasons. Now that one's hard for us, right? At the time in which Jesus is saying this, did the, the people that Jesus was speaking to, did they have the freedom of participating in a type of government like we have? Did they have a voice? Were they able to vote and were they able to go to meetings and were they able to spread you know, certain words and possibly have some influence and uh, have you know, to some degree a say in what was happening? Were they representative? No. Do we have that privilege? Absolutely. And is that an opportunity for us to bear witness to the truth, goodness, and beauty of God. Absolutely. But what we have to be careful of is even when we are utilizing that amazing privilege that, that so many, the overwhelming majority of the followers of Christ for thousands of years have not had. Okay? This is not the norm. It is a privilege and it, and it is awesome. But we have to remember that the privilege that we have of participating in this way does not change what Jesus says. And even in the way that we engage in politics with, within the privilege that we have, we have to be absolutely careful that we do not lose the gospel in our efforts. We have to be really careful that we don't attempt to use power in order to protect our own. Put another way, we don't want to become 
the very thing that we're trying to address. Right? We don't want to become Masala. What we want, Jesus says here, is to develop a faith and a trust and a humility to submit ourselves to the divine will and to embody the divine will, especially as we see that in Christ, in his humility, service, meekness, in his hunger, in his, in, in, in his mercy, and in his peacemaking. We are not just called to try to be good according to traditional or conservative mores. To be righteous is more than just trying to avoid bad behavior. And to be righteous is more than just trying to keep oneself pure according to what the culture, or even our church considers to be pure. What we are called to in righteousness is to be courageously and actively doing God's will. Loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. Not collecting all the wheat not stripping all of our fruit vines bare, not using our words for power, not using our testimonies to get our way, but being a people who can strive to honestly embody our Savior, who understood that his devotion to his Father was going to cost him his life and yet was going to lead to resurrection and to glory. And so as we continue to consider these beatitudes that Jesus is setting before us as the wisdom that you and I need to follow him well in the midst of a, of a cursed generation so that we are taking Christ more and more into ourselves so that more and more of Christ is becoming evident within our lives, that, that we get to bear witness to God, to the superiority of his worth, where through our good works and through the truth that we speak in love and respect, Jesus says, that that is what will allow people to glorify our Heavenly Father because of what they see and hear in us. And so if we want to learn how to respond to to persecution well, it has to start with a willingness to go through it rather than trying to avoid it. It has to start with a willingness 
to give, to entrust ourselves to Christ in it, rather than to try to use the name of Christ to get us out of it. We have to be willing to to, uh, trust Christ and to respond with his love rather than to get agitated, frustrated, angry, and hateful. Because, by the way, as the fire hydrant keeps coming, Jesus is about to tell us the person who hates his brother has committed murder. Beloved, it is so easy for us to respond to the ongoing hardship and suffering of following Christ in a cursed generation. But remember, we are the one who is united to the Christ who perfectly gave himself to his Father and gave himself for us in order to give himself to us that we might be his body, that we might be his people, through whom those who are still in the darkness would come to see his light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to follow Christ, not only when it is comfortable and easy, but especially when it actually requires faith, where it requires submission to your divine will, not only to the things we want to submit to, but to all of it. And give us the wisdom, Lord, to know how to do this, being wise as serpents and gentle as doves. But in our hearts, Lord, help us to be consecrated to the purposes of our Christ, who suffered for us, who set the example before us, that if we are going to be found in him, we are going to suffer with him but that our suffering like his will lead to resurrection and to glory. Lord, help us not to attempt to inherit the earth and help us not to attempt to inherit your kingdom by works of the will and power, but through the humility of trusting Christ. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.